G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Is this the Word of God? Now, this is a big question because of this. If it's not, we should be laughed at. Hi and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Today we ask, how is the Bible different? Is it really the Word of God, the way the Creator of the world chose to reveal Himself to us? How can I trust that this is the Word of God? How can I be sure this is God's Word to us? What makes this book any different than any other book ever written? Why is it different from any other religious book? This is Today with Jeff Vines. Good morning. Welcome to Christ Church of the Valley. We're glad that you're here. If you've got a friend that invited you this morning, uh, just want you to know it's because they love you and they are hoping that you'll find something very special here that will just kind of change the way you look at life, the way you look at the present and the future, meaning, hope, your significance, your purpose in this world. And we hope that today you'll find that. We're in a series entitled Questions I Would Like to Ask God. Even though this may not be a difficult one, this question is the mother of all questions we can ask in our Christian faith, because it has to do with the primary source of information, where we get our faith from God. Now, how many of you grew up in churches? Now, it's going to be a little older crowd, but how many of you grew up in churches? Do you remember the flannel boards? Come on. How many of you, remember when you had Jesus walking on the water, Peter was in the boat? Bring back the flannel boards. Those were the good old, them were the good old days, weren't they? That's that amazing. And you remember your Sunday school teacher teaching you those stories? And of course, now, by the way, there are some young people in here right now, they have no idea what a flannel board is. I just saw looking around, they're like, what? Anyway, coolest thing, all right? Really cool. Find out what it is. But as we grew up, we would remember these stories that our parents told us. We'd remember the stories that our Sunday school teachers reiterated to us. And we would recall uh, stories like Daniel and Job and Jonah, and we would kind of take comfort from them and take lessons. But inevitably, like J.D. Drew talked about, those stories did have an impact in our lives. And in the time we made our decision, it was the culmination of all those stories and our belief in the Bible. But here's the problem. Inevitably, in all of our lives, or at least most lives, you get to a point where you have a path to take. Is this really the word of God? Is this really God's word? Did he really communicate to us, the creator of the universe, through word revelation? Would the creator of all things actually choose to do that? 1,500 years, a lot of different authors. Is this the word of God? Now, this is a big question because of this. If it's not, we should be laughed at. 
Because everything we believe about Jesus, everything we believe about being a Christian, the reason we're here this morning originates from right here, either passed down through oral tradition from your parents or grandparents or your reading of the word. Now, that's a pretty big ask. And when I tell the skeptic that this is the word of God, I'm usually laughed at. The word of God to us, and we can actually trust it? Well, that's my next question. How can I trust that this is the word of God? How can I be sure this is God's word to us? What makes this book any different than any other book ever written? Why is it different from any other religious book? Now, that's a big question. Here's what I want to do. Because I think it is a huge question. I'm going to pretend as I'm a lawyer today. And I'm going to give you three exhibits. Exhibit A, Exhibit B, and Exhibit C in an effort to make an argument for the fact that this indeed is the Word of God come down through the writing of men, but inspired by God. So here's the first exhibit. Exhibit A, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Now you say, hold on a second. Just because the Bible claims the Word of God doesn't mean that it is. That's true. But what we don't want to do is attribute something to the Bible that the Bible doesn't claim for itself. And in this first exhibit, I'm simply saying the Bible does claim to be the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul, writing to a young Timothy as a preacher, says, All Scripture, that is the Greek word graphe, that which is, has been written, all Scripture is breathed out by God, spoken by, that means, it, 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 some translations might say God breathed, either way, is signifying that it originates, it's about origination, it originates from God, from his mind, it is God spoken and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. And then of course Peter, a disciple who became an apostle, writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy, in other words, nothing that was spoken of scripture, nothing that is spoken that has been written comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, now look up just a second. Now you make a severe error if you think that the Bible writers, it was like a Ouija board, like kind of God inspired them and they went into a trance and they wrote the scripture. I'll let me get this straight. John three sixteen. okay, four, got it. God got it. So loved, got it. The world, that's not the, how it, the, the way that it happened. The doctrine of inspiration can be best described like this as translated from this phrase, carried along by the Spirit. Imagine a man who is driving a horse-drawn carriage. And as long as the horses stay on path, there is no need for there to be a tight rein or for them to pull the horses back into the center. But if the horses at any point start getting off the path, then the reins become tighter and the driver pulls them back into the center. This is called the doctrine of inspiration. In other words... God allowed these men to use their characteristics, their temperaments, their research, their personalities, their writing styles, but he inevitably was responsible for the final product. So that when you read Paul, Paul is incredibly systematic. He's a deep thinker. He's always thinking about what somebody's going to ask or say in response to what he's previously written. So he writes systematically. You go over to Peter and read what Peter wrote. He's a sanguine. He's all over the place. But in the end, he pulls it back to the center. You think, about, you think about John just for a moment. John was enamored with the love of Jesus. And so John, when he writes, writes just penetratingly about the topic of love and the love of God for us. The point is, God is responsible for the final product, 
But men, using their mind, vocabularies, and experiences, were carried along by God. Now think about this for a moment. How hard is that really for God? If God's the creator of the universe and everything that exists in the world, of you and me and the galaxies, the ones we see, the ones we cannot see, how hard would it be for God to inspire some men by the Holy Spirit using their personalities and research to give to us the final product of what he wanted to communicate to us? And doesn't it make sense that God would communicate to us in language because that's how we communicate to each other? And so the only thing I'm saying here, I'm not saying that this proves the Bible's the Word of God. I'm just saying, let's not attribute to the Word of God something that the Word of God does not claim for itself. And it says that the Bible claims to be the Word of God, inspired by God, written to the hands of men. Now, Exhibit B. The Bible is completely accurate in its historical references. Exhibit B, the Bible is completely accurate in his historical references. Now, when somebody makes a comment to me, well, I don't believe Jesus ever lived. I think it's myth and legend. My immediate response is, well, then you're just ignorant. In, in a nice way, you're ignorant of how we determine who lives and who dies and who does not exist and the impact they have on the world. Now, let me give you something that maybe you've never heard before. We do not need the Bible to know Jesus lived. Don't need it. Other first century historians wrote about Jesus, his ministry, his life, and his doings. Even if we didn't have the Bible, we could read the Roman historian Tacitus. We could read the works of the Jewish historian Josephus or Thales, who wrote a history of the Eastern Mediterranean world, or Pliny the Younger, and so forth and so on. There are many others. If you didn't have the Bible, if you didn't even have the Bible, by first century, second, and third century historical resources, we would know the following. I've listed them for you. Without the Bible, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there lived a man named Jesus, born in Bethlehem, in the house of David, raised in Nazareth, who was a Jewish teacher. We know that he performed miracles and exorcisms. Now, miracles were not that big a deal in the first century like they are today, where we have a hard time believing them. For a century, somebody achieved a miracle, the credit was given where credit is due. We have outside historians externally to the Bible recording that Jesus was somebody who performed miracles. Most of you probably didn't know that. We have many people knowing from that first century context believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He was rejected by Jewish leaders. We know by outside resources other than the Bible that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. That thousands upon thousands believed in his resurrection and followed him diligently even to the point of death. We know that Christianity spread beyond Palestine so that there were thousands and thousands of Christians in Rome by AD 64 and that people from all walks of life, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, slave and free, worshiped Jesus Christ as God. Now that's just a reminder. And folks, I'm trying to do a message in 30 minutes that usually takes me four weeks. So you got to hold on. I got to talk fast or I won't get it in. So the first thing I want you to know is we don't need the Bible to know that Jesus is a real man in history that impacted his people, his place, the land of Palestine. But it goes much deeper than that. Did you know? Way past that. This is Today with Jeff Vines. The message is, how is the Bible different? About how we can trust the Bible and its authenticity. Here's Pastor Jeff. You and I are, have the opportunity and the privilege of living in a generation that now we know and we can categorically state that any time in the past when a historical reference has contradicted a biblical reference, that the biblical reference has proven every time to be the more certain or trustworthy. I just want to give you, now we can stand up here and just rattle off the examples. Can I give you just a few? The first one is this. 
If you look over in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we have Luke, who was a personal physician to the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of your New Testament. He is also an historian first rate. He recorded the events of the early church. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he mentions at the end of that verse that Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. For years, historians said, ha ha. Well, maybe they didn't say ha ha, but they said, Luke cannot be trusted because we know that he's wrong. Lysanias was not tetrarch, but rather he was ruler of Chalcis a half century earlier. And of course, they cast doubt on Luke and said he couldn't be trusted. But as has often happened, an archaeological dig uncovered the inscription from the time of Tiberius from 14 to 37 AD. It names Lysanias as Tetrarch in Abilene near Damascus, just as Luke had written. Now, folks, this is one example. It happens time and time again. Let me give you another one. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. The historian Luke makes reference to polytarchs, which is translated in your New Testament, city officials in the city of Thessalonica. Now, the problem is scholars said for years that Luke cannot be trusted because there's no evidence of the term polytarchs to be found anywhere in ancient Roman literature. But today, if you and I could board an airplane, I could take you to the British Museum and I would show you where archeologists have found more than 35 inscriptions that mention polytarchs, several from the Thessalonica period. So that now in the 21st century, we can categorically state that where there have been contradictions between the historical records and biblical accounts Archaeological discoveries have proven the biblical account to be the more accurate, not once or twice, but every single time. Now, let me give you one of my favorite examples. The Old Testament makes frequent reference to the Hittites, the nation of the Hittites, who were arch enemies to the nation of Israel. And for many, many hundreds of years, scholars said there's no evidence of the Hittites ever existing. Therefore, the Old Testament cannot be trusted. And then something interesting happened in 1906 when during an archaeological dig, we uncovered and confirmed the existence of the Hittites and in fact unearthed the capital city along with 40 other cities that make up their empire. That fact, as well as many others, has led John McRae, who is the scientist that National Geographic calls when they want to find out more information about the intricate details of geography associated with the ancient world. Here's what he says. There's no question that archaeological findings have enhanced the New Testament's credibility. No discovery, no discovery has ever disproved a biblical reference. Now, when I talk about these things, I don't like to sling mud. You know what they say about slinging mud? You know, you get your hands dirty and you lose a lot of ground. I don't want to sling mud, but from time to time, it is important for me to contrast and compare Jesus and the Bible with other religious beliefs. I do that patiently and I hope lovingly. But just let me give you an example found in the Book of Mormon, for instance. The Book of Mormon mentions a vast civilization. It existed in the Americas between 600 BC and 400 AD. It names the tribes, the cities, the mountains, the rivers, and the coinages. Only one big problem. There is not one single historian inside or outside the Mormon church that's produced a single shred of evidence or artifact that would sustain any of the claims of the Book of Mormon when it comes to this vast civilization. When I have confronted my Mormon friends or those who knock on my door with this fact, they say to me, that's just the way it is. You have to accept it by faith. 
My response is, no, I don't. Jesus does not call me to blind faith. He consistently asks me, where does the evidence point? Jesus says, for me to be a Christian, I don't check my intellect at the door. I use my intellect, and the wisdom of God will guide me toward intellectual questions that will eventually eventuate in my faith in Jesus Christ and the Word. All I'm saying, all I'm saying in this first thing is, A, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. B, that the Bible is extremely accurate. In fact, perfectly accurate in its historical references. But let's be honest. Neither one of those prove that the Bible is the Word of God. I want you to stay with me here. Folks, this was a big thing for me in my journey around the age of 23. I was at a point in my life when I could have gone either way. Preacher or non-believer. I mean, it was a fine line. Remember that. Some of you are worried about your children. Be patient. Let them ask their questions. Don't get angry with them. My mom and dad were brilliant at this, just tolerating me when I probably should have been smacked a lot more or more often than I was. But, oh, I can't say that. I might be arrested. Never mind. I was at a time in my life when I was right on the line, and this was the issue for me. Come on, the Word of God, I've got to have something special. I gotta have something that convinces me this is the word of God. And just because the Bible claims to be, and just because it's accurate in historical references, there are other books that are accurate in historical references. There's got to be something more. What I'm about to give you in exhibit A, I believe, is very powerful, but I've got to build a stage and then just let it all come out, and I think it will encourage all of us. I do it like this. I want to start by, I was in New Zealand in one of those university conferences, and I had a young Muslim come up to me and say, look, man, I'd li- I, heard, I heard what you said, and I appreciate the loving way you presented it. He said, but I'd like to have lunch with you because I have some things I'd like to say. I said, great, let's have lunch. You pay, and I'll pray, and we'll eat. And so he paid, and I prayed, and we ate. And he looked across the table at when we were about to start dessert, and he said, Pastor Jeff, I appreciate everything you've said. I've heard it, but I just have one statement to make. And I think this must be popular because I've heard this numerous times since then. He said, I don't see any difference between Jesus or Muhammad. You try to say there's a difference, but they're two great men, great religious leaders. I said, is that true? He said, yes. I said, can I ask you a question? He agreed. I said, is it not true that even the Koran explicitly states that Jesus was virgin born? He said, yes. I said, and you don't think there's a difference between Jesus and Muhammad? Now, he looked at me with glazed eyes as if no one had ever confronted him with that. I mean, Jesus is unique, uniquely different. I don't know how that goes together, but he is different than any other religious leader. Hey, it's, hey I'm tired, okay? But he is different. He lived a sinless life, claimed resurrection from the dead, and was born a virgin. And if you can't see how that distinguishes him from Muhammad, then that's a whole other intellectual argument. But here's the point. In the same way that Jesus, as a religious leader, distinguishes himself from every other religious leader, the Bible also has a distinguishing mark that in my mind proved to me that it is the Word of God. I can trust it. God's revelation to man. Here's what it is. Exhibit C. The Bible contains the fingerprint of God. Exhibit C. The Bible contains the fingerprint of God. Of God. This is Today with Jeff Vines. 
We'll have to leave it there for today, but next time we'll continue our look at why we can trust the Bible as a reliable historical document and as the living Word of God. Exhibit C tells me that that's what separates it from every ever book ever written. 48 specific detailed prophecies. And I just think it's interesting that in a time of great unbelief, this is the time when God keeps offering the most evidence. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 